Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 5 through 12. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we begin to, to study this narrative of the nativity, Lord, I just pray that you will bless us, not just in what we read, but in the many connections that there are uh, throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, especially the history of redemption that we are seeing come to its consummation, its fulfillment in the advent of Jesus Christ. I just pray that you will make us aware, not just of this passage, but the way that the passage fits into the rest of Scripture. And we will, of course, give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today's January 10th, unless you're in a fog like I am sometimes, you probably already know that. But just 10 days ago, we celebrated a new year, and the night before that, we had our New Year's Eve service. Now, I am told that 60% of Americans make New Year's resolutions on those days, now, a resolution is like a promise that you make to yourself, that you promise that you're going to do something in the new year. And you know, people promise things like, I think the number one is I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to diet. They promise to stop smoking, to learn a new skill, to stop drinking, all kinds of things that people promise. But here we are on the 10th of January and actually... Three days ago, in the first week, 23% of those who make uh, New Year's resolutions will already have forgotten them. Uh, and of the 77% who make it through the first week, well, they don't make it very far because less than 8%, that means 92% don't keep their promises and less than 8% actually in any way keep a New Year's resolution. But you know, that's what New Year's resolutions are for, right? That's kind of a frivolous example because, you know, resolutions are made to be broken. But I'm making a point here that in our culture, we have almost lost the belief in promises remembered 
What about more serious promises that we make, formal promises that are made in this country? When you go and you borrow money from the bank for one reason or another, it's a formal promise. You promise that you will pay that money back. Yet in 2019, this is before the pandemic, um, in that year, 5.2 million student loans were in either in default or seriously delinquent. The number who defaulted on their mortgages was even higher. I think it was something like six, over six million in just this last September. The same numbers apply for credit card debt or or, our car debt. People make promises, but then they simply forget, it seems, that they made those promises. Now, I realize there's extenuating circumstances for some, but a lot of people just don't pay their debts. Uh, What about more personal promises that we make when you're married? You stand before a pastor or a judge and you promise faithfulness and fidelity and love to your spouse. And yet, depending on which statistic you look at, 22 to 50 percent of men have at least one affair in their marriage. 14 to 30-something percent of women have at least one affair. And that's not keeping your promises. And speaking of marriage, 60% of marriages end in divorce. When you stand before and you say, a judge or a pastor, and you say, I will love my spouse forever. Nothing is going to separate us. Well, you'd be amazed at the percentage of that 60% that actually don't even last a year. And the point that I'm making is this, is that we live in a culture, in an environment where we have almost begun to think that no one keeps their promises. Whether it's a person, a group, or an institution, we have lost faith in people remembering their promises. And the whole focus this morning is that we do not apply that to God because God keeps his promises. The focus of our, our study is going to be a man named Zechariah. Well, Zechariah's name, Zachar in Hebrew, means remember, and Ayah is a shortening of the word Yahweh. So Zechariah's name means God remembers. He remembers every promise he's ever made. And he will fulfill every promise he's ever made. I don't care how far back you go. God keeps his promises. And I also want to bring out, I'll bring this out a little bit later. Not only does God remember his promises, but he remembers yours as well. Every single one that you made, God doesn't forget that you made those promises. Well, if you weren't here last week, we started a new study of the Gospel of Luke. We read the first four verses, which is the prologue, and we learned some things about Luke mainly in those. We learned that he was very educated. It was a very formal prologue written in a more classical, a loftier Greek. And we learned pretty much four things about Luke as we looked through that prologue. First of all, we actually didn't learn it from the prologue, but we learned elsewhere in Scripture that he was a physician, a scientist. 
And then we learned that he was an historian, just the way he writes his gospel, very historically accurate. We talked about him being a theologian, how it was important to him to systematize the doctrines that he was going to be presenting. But more than any of those, we sort of focused on the fact that Luke was a pastor. He had a pastor's heart. And the way that we drew that out was that Luke had gone to all this trouble, however many weeks or months or years that it took him to compile the information, to interview all the different uh, firsthand eyewitnesses, and to write it down. He did all that for a single man, Theophilus. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit has taken that work and blessed the many through his gospel. But Luke spent all of that effort because he was concerned that a single man, same thing in Acts, knew the gospel of Jesus Christ because he wanted him to get it right. Well, another thing that we learned last week is that Luke, there were many other attempts to write gospel stories, and Luke wasn't saying they they didn't make any, they weren't right. He just said that many others have done it in a certain way, and and, and I'm going to do it for Theophilus in another way. But we mentioned at that time that some of those accounts were written in a very Hebrew perspective, and some were written in a very Gentile perspective. Luke seems to be enthralled with the Hebrew history of redemption, and he himself a Gentile. And so many people think that he took some material that was written in Hebrew rich, especially these first three chapters of the Nativity story. Now, he might have done that. But they bear the mark of the historian, of the theologian, and the pastor that Luke was. And so we're going to dive into that narrative um, starting this morning. Now, um, the first three verses of that narrative, Luke is going to pretty much set the scene for us. He's going to introduce some characters that are going to be very vital. I'm splitting this narrative in sort of an unnatural spot. You're not going to like it. I'm going to build up a drama and then I'm going to stop. <laughs> you know, But you sort of have to because it's a longer narrative. We're only going to take a certain part of it this morning. So let's turn to verse 5 of chapter 1 of Luke and we will dive into this as he, first of all, sets the scene by introducing some characters to us. He starts out by saying, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, we immediately see Luke the historian beginning to come out because when he says in the days of Herod, what he is doing is setting the time frame for us. Later on, he's going to get much more specific. If you look at the second chapter, the first verse, he gets more specific. If you look at the third chapter, the first verse, he gets very specific about times. Uh, These kinds of facts are very important to Luke. But when he sets the general time, period by saying in the days of Herod. First of all, usually in Luke, both Luke, the gospel and Acts, when he speaks of Herod, he's talking of Herod Antipas, who is Herod the first or Herod the great's son. But here is the only reference that he makes to 
Herod the Great. Now, Herod ruled between 40 BC and 4 BC. Actually, he came to power in 40 BC. He really was given power by the Romans. It took him three years to subdue Israel because Israel didn't like him because he wasn't even a Jew. But, you know, with the help of Roman soldiers, he subdued. And so his reign was pretty much from 37 BC to 4 BC. Now, when Luke tells us that he was the king of Judea, he doesn't mean that he was just the king of the southern part of Israel. No, he was the king of the entire um, land all the way up to to Galilee and actually even north and east of that, north of the Decapolis and over in the south, east of the Jordan River in Perea as well. So all of that land was under Herod's jurisdiction. Now, the important part about Herod, and I'll probably revisit him just a little bit in the after church, but the important part about Herod was that he was a wicked, tyrannical, paranoid king. And he oppressively taxed the people virtually out of existence. I mean, from the Gospel of Matthew, we learn about his wickedness in that abominable act when he killed an entire village full of kids, I mean, two years and under, when he's just trying to find the Messiah. He was that paranoid. He killed several members of his own family and anyone else who threatened his throne. Now, he was an amazing builder. That's one of his positive aspects. I mean, he built that amazing temple in Jerusalem. He built a magnificent tomb for himself outside of Jerusalem called Herodium. And he built a magnificent fortress called Masada over on the eastern side of, of, of Israel. But he also built pagan structures. He built pagan temples. He built Caesarea Maritime, an entire Roman city with hippodrome, with uh, um, amphitheaters, with Roman baths. In fact, Herod was responsible for the Hellenization of Israel as much as anyone else. Hellenization just simply means the dominant culture, even though Rome was the dominant military power, the dominant culture was Greek, pagan, immoral to the core. Well, Herod was bringing that in to Israel. So these are dark days. He's taxing the people out of existence so he can build all these things. They were rough political days, and they were rough spiritual days, as we will see later. Well, that's the backdrop. That's the environment that... Dr. Luke wants us to see. Now, with that backdrop, he goes ahead and introduces the two characters who will be most important in the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist, who, as you know, would be the herald of the Messiah. He introduced first Zechariah. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I mispronounce any Hebrew word for sure. Um, but, but anyway, uh, he, he was a priest according to a, a direct descendant of Aaron, as all priests would be. Um, the division that, uh, of the priest it will be important in this story. Abijah was one of 24 different divisions. David actually is the one who set that up. 24 divisions of priests, and they would take 
take turns in a rotation doing the priestly functions in the temple. They would serve for two sessions of a week each during the year. So he was of that group. Now, I've already mentioned what Zechariah means. Zechariah, the God or Yahweh remembers. Very popular name. I think there's like a dozen people in scripture who are named Zechariah. He should not be confused with the prophet Zechariah who did so much to announce the coming of the Christ child. Well, that's Zechariah. We'll return to him later. And then we meet his wife, his wife whose name was Elizabeth. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, And her name was Elizabeth. Now, it wasn't necessary, I am told, that a priest who was always a descendant of Aaron married a a wife, a woman who was also a direct descendant of Aaron. He did have to marry within the tribe of Levi. He had to marry a Levite. But when there was a marriage between a son of Aaron and a daughter of Aaron, it was considered to be a particularly blessed marriage, a blessed relationship. And and such was the relationship between Zechariah and Elizabeth. We will see a little bit that there was a tension. There was a problem in that relationship. Um, Elizabeth was barren. But nonetheless, you couldn't get any more Hebrew than these people. And then Luke is going to tell us not only were they both of the descendants of Aaron, but they were faithful. And that's what he's going to express in the next verse. Verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, if the place that your mind immediately goes when you read that someone was righteous and blameless is to Romans who quotes, Paul quotes uh, the Psalms when he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And you wonder, well, what on earth does that mean? I'm going to delve into that in a little bit of detail in the after church uh, about each one of these things that are said. But let me just go ahead and give you a general uh, reason. He's not so much talking about justification righteousness, the kind of righteousness that we must have to be justified so we can stand before God. He's talking about religious righteousness. He was faithful. They were keeping the commandments. They were doing everything that they possibly could in order to to, to be good Hebrews, good Jews within the context of Judaism. And so they, they, they they were faithful to those commandments. Now, I want you to realize or remember the backdrop that we talked about earlier. We've already talked about Herod and the political backdrop, but in a religious sense, it was even worse than it was politically and and um, internationally the way that Herod was bringing paganism into Israel. Because if you remember just 30 years from now, when Jesus begins his ministry, what's going to be his major target? Who is he going to have all of his conflict with? It is going to be the religious leaders, and among those religious leaders, one of the worst is going to be the priesthood. The priesthood was completely corrupt. They were horribly um, apostate. They had made their own religion. They, They were the theological liberals of the day. And so, 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were part of a community that even within their community, they were outcasts because they were faithful to the original callings, the original callings of, of, of God in the Old Testament. They were being faithful to those commands and they hadn't twisted them like the Sadducees and the Pharisees had. So there was a, a, a spiritual darkness in the situation that they were in, just like there was the political darkness. Now, another thing that I'm going to handle in the after church, it would have added about 15 minutes to my sermon, but it is so, it is so rich. The scripture speaks of this community, this tiny, we're going to call it the messianic community. <clears throat> and the messianic community is the community through whom God brought his Messiah. There are not a whole lot of them at this time because pretty much the religious community is apostate and the rest of them are becoming pagans in the sense. So there was Joseph, there was Mary, there was Zechariah, there was Elizabeth, there was Anna, there was Simeon. Luke tells us about all of these who were part of that messianic community through whom God brought the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. They were faithful. In other words, they remembered that God had promised the Messiah and not only did they believe in what God had promised they knew that God would remember those promises and they lived their lives accordingly they just didn't believe in their minds or even in their hearts they believed in the way that they lived their lives and that's what Luke is bringing out that's the kind of faithfulness that we see in this couple now again We'll talk about that. But it was also a community in agony. Both of the passages that I'm going to bring out later on, again, in the after church, one from Revelation, one from Micah, both of them talk about the agony of childbirth. That's what it is being uh, represented to us, that the Messianic community is literally in the throes of giving childbirth. And the reason they were in agony was several fold. One we've already talked about, the wickedness of of Herod and the way that he was changing and bringing the pagan culture into the church. Sound familiar to you at all? Well, anyway, he was bringing that paganism into the church at the same time, as I said, Judaism had become entirely apostate. The Sadducees were liberals. They didn't believe in angels or spiritual or the resurrection, and they really didn't even believe in the Messiah. The Pharisees had gone to the other extreme and were consummate legalists. The Herodians were all about bringing Rome into and making peace with Rome. And of course, the Zealots were the original terrorists who were going to take the, 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 you know, the, the world by storm, by violence. That was Judaism of the day. And so they are in agony. I mean, and you would be too if you looked around you and the religious environment that you lived in was like that. Now, there's some other reasons that they were um, in agony. One of those reasons I already mentioned, and this is very important to this morning. 400 years, God had been silent. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet who wrote anything down. For 400 years, there hadn't been a peep of special revelation out of God. And this community was faithful 
at the end of that 400-year period. And that's where the drama of this situation begins to come in. They are in agony waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah to come because they knew that Zechariah, God is a God who remembers his promises. And so they were waiting for that fulfillment. And this story, brothers and sisters, is the crystalline moment when it happens, when he once again begins to reveal himself after 400 years of silence. Well, anyway, there's a tension amongst the environment, but there's also a tension within um, the marriage itself, as we learn in that seventh chapter, but they, I'm sorry, seventh verse, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, brothers and sisters, when you read something like that, a little alarm bell should go off in your mind. Hmm, barren woman, too old to have a child, that means something miraculous is about to happen because God loves these kinds of situations to bring about and remember his promises because we go back into scripture and you think about the mother uh, and the father of Samson, same situation, the situation with Rachel, she was barren, situation with Hannah, she was barren, but the most, the closest corollary is with Abraham and Sarah because not only was Sarah barren her whole life, but she was 90 years old when she had Isaac, well beyond the time of having a child. So now you see a corollary to that. When you do that, it draws a line between this situation and the situation that occurred with Abraham. So what is that situation? God promised to Abraham that I will give you descendants like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seas and all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, that is exactly what's happening now. Finally, after all of those years, God is going to fulfill, remember his covenantal promises to Abraham. And he is going to bring his son to be that one who will bless all the world. And we're at the cusp of that. We're at the very beginning of that now as we see the angel appear to um, Zechariah. Well, let's go on and, and we'll look at the, as the action of our story begins in the 8th verse. Reading both the 8th and the ninth verses together. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. As I told you, there were 24 divisions or orders of priests. Now, David is the one who actually instigated that. It was a tradition, um, and David started it. Now, when the exile occurred and, and everyone was taken off to Babylon, only four of those orders returned from Babylon. But what they did in the subsequent years leading up to this time is they went ahead and divided those four divisions back up into the 24 using the original names. Now, by the time of Zechariah, something you need to realize, there were 18,000 priests in Israel, okay? So if they were equally divided among all 24 of the divisions, that means 750 or so priests to each division. 
there were far more priests than there were jobs for them to do. Because if you remember, each division had two weeks a year, and that's all. That's the only time they actually served in the, the temple were doing those two weeks. Now, again, a lot more priests than there are uh, jobs to do, so they would throw lots. They, they would cast the lots. Now, you know what that means in a biblical context. It means that not only is someone being chosen for this particular task, but they are being chosen by God because God is the one who would answer those. It wasn't pure chance. They didn't see it as pure chance. They saw it as the will of God. So in other words, to be chosen at all out of all of those 750 to 1,000 priests to do one of the jobs was a privilege because God had chosen you to do that. Many priests would go their whole lives without being uh, given this privilege because they wouldn't, the lot wouldn't call on them. And once you did this, once you were chosen for a job, you could never do it again. So in other words, this is a big day for Zechariah. This is a huge day for him because he has been chosen by God to burn the incense on this particular day. Now, I am told, again, whenever I say I am told, it means I read it someplace in one of my commentaries, and I, I, I'm accepting their word for it <clears throat> without researching it deeply myself. But I am told that of all the priestly functions, the one that was most coveted, if you will, the one that was most important, beside the once a year that the high priest only went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the, in the old days, the mercy seat. Now just where the mercy seat should have been. Well, that was the most important job. But of the rest of the priest, the most important job, the most desired was to burn the incense. And part of the reason for that was because the incense altar was right next to the veil that separated the Holy of Holies. It is as close as a priest could get to God in, in those days and in that administration because you were right next to the place. In fact, in some places in Scripture, the altar of incense is sort of lumped together with that, um, the Holy of Holies. Well, anyway, today is Zechariah's big day. He is going to be the mediator of the people and he is going to be the one who is going to uh, uh, take this function. Now, <clears throat> again, in the after church, uh, there's, there's sort of a theological issue here that we should discuss. And, and that's the whole idea of mediation. The fact that Zechariah is not just going in to perform a function. As the priest, he's the mediator between the people and God. This is the way God set it up in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king, each one of them in a different ecclesiastical office is the mediator through whom God would either reveal himself or in the, in the case of Zechariah, hear their prayers. So when he goes to burn the incense on the altar, what he is doing is as the mediator going into 
to present the prayers symbolically of the people who were outside doing the praying. It was a very important, a very special relationship. And of course, he would pray. Uh, the prayers were prayers of, of thanksgiving and praise and confession, prayers for Israel and for its future and provision. Whatever that was, that was all part of the act of going in and burning incense on the altar. In fact, if you look there in the 10th verse, we read, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside um, at the hour of incense. Now, I'm not going to hazard a guess as to whether this was in the morning prayers or in the afternoon prayers. I mean, scholars are equally divided, just as emphatic and whichever one. Uh, probably the afternoon, because I think that had more of a chance of having a huge multitude. So the multitude is out. I mean, you can just visualize this. The mul- Actually, I want to ask you to really visualize this in a moment. The, the multitude is outside. The, the women are in the court of women. The men are in the court of the Jews. The priests are prostrate, prostrate on the ground, praying flat out as Zechariah now goes into the temple to make the sacrifices again as the mediator for the people. So here's what I want you to try to do. Um, This is far more of a dramatic moment than we normally give it. It it really isn't. Uh, uh, we, We just read over it and we say, oh yeah, he went in and burned incense. It's not exactly like that. And especially after 400 years when an angel appears to him physically in that place. So... I want to see if I can get your imaginations going here just a wee bit that you will visualize what happens. Let me go ahead and finish our text. Let me go ahead and read the 11th and 12th verse, and then we'll go back and we'll see if we can't visualize what's going on in the 11th verse. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Well, after Zechariah was chosen to be the priest who is going to burn incense, he was human. So he must have been so proud because it was really a sense there. Your, your, the estimation of other people went up when they saw you, when you were chosen to burn incense and, and, and to be one of those, it was like you were chosen by God. So it was a great, a, a wonderful day for him. And so he's, he's thrilled to be the one to go in. Now, if, if you know what the temple, and this is the temple building itself, the sanctuary, sometimes the temple refers to the entire grounds of the temple, but now we're talking about the sanctuary sanctuary itself. It was all made out of Jerusalem stone, which is a very white stone, especially when the sun shines upon it. And we can assume that the sun was shining brightly as it does in Israel. It seems to shine brighter there. It's a very arid environment, not a lot of moisture in the air. And so when that sun shines on uh, Jerusalem stone, it almost comes alive. It, it, It almost shines like a beacon or a light. And the temple itself was gilded with gold on the top and those huge gigantic pillars that were outside of in this giant door leading into the inner sanctuary known as the holy place. I mean, Zechariah would pass through those doors 
into the quiet serenity of the holy place. Probably would have taken him a while for his eyes to have adjusted because there was probably only the light of the menorah and maybe a dim glow of the charcoals on the altar of incense. But when his eyes adjusted, it was dark in there. To my knowledge, there's no other windows. But he could see that the the ceiling soared above him 60 feet. It's an awe-inspiring place to be, a calm place, a reverent place, a spiritual place. So as he slowly would make his way towards the altar of incense, right in front of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, he would have passed the menorah on his left. That golden lampstand with seven lamps upon it representing the eternal presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of his people. To his right would have been the gold-covered showbread table with 12 freshly baked loaves of bread representing the providential provision of God for his people. Slowly, he would have made his way towards that altar, and I can imagine that his blood pressure went up with every single step. Because John MacArthur makes it clear in his commentary that the priest really wanted to get in and out. Even though it was a great privilege, they were scared to death to be that close to the Holy of Holies because they were afraid they would do something that would be blasphemous to the name of God. And unfortunately to Zechariah next week, we're going to see that he does just that. But in each step, The tension would be mounting. On the one hand, he is thrilled, but on another hand, he is in the presence of the all-holy God in that place. Finally, he would reach the altar of incense. Now, by some um, uh, accounts of this, there would have been two assistants with him, both of them priests. No one entered here except the priest. One of them would carry a censer of fresh coals that he would then pour on the altar so it would burn brightly. The other would be carrying the incense, uh, the resin of certain trees from India or Arabia that had a pungent smoke. He would hand that to Zechariah and then they would leave. Zechariah would be left alone in the temple to begin the process of burning the incense. Slowly, he would place the incense on the charcoal and immediately would begin to burn. And a pungent smoke would lift first and then fill the room as he recited the prayers that were all so familiar to him. Now what should have happened is he recited his prayers, he put all of the incense on the on the altar and he turned and he left and he enjoyed the afterglow of being chosen to be the priest, but that's not what happened because God chose that crystalline moment, that moment when he is lifting the prayers of the people for the Messiah, for the future of Israel, for their, for their own salvation, God once again does not enter space and time himself, but he sends his messenger, the angel, to confront Zechariah and tell him that after 400 years, you, the man who is named Zechariah, 
God remembers. God has remembered you. He has remembered his people. And he is going to send the one who will be the sacrifice for their sins. It is a dramatic moment, uh, to say the least. Well, now with that in your mind, and I hope that uh, you've built a little bit of drama going up to the appearance of the angel. Let's talk about that appearance. Remember, it's dark in there. It's calm. It's serene. It is reverent. And all of a sudden, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, my inclination would be when he says the right side, I would think to Zechariah's right, right? Um, But I'm told, uh, scholars say, no, 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 that's never the case. It's always facing east, facing the same direction that the um, temple would face. And that would mean that the angel would appear to Zechariah's left, But regardless of where the angel appeared, an angel from heaven appeared. Now, it's important that you realize that um, it it wasn't just a a vision or a dream or a mist or a shadow or something that appeared in his mind. This is a physical, I don't know what angels are made of, but it was a physical uh, uh, appearance of an angel. Now, We're told later on in the 19th verse, it's not just any angel. This is Gabriel the archangel who has come to bring the message directly from God to Zechariah that God remembers. And so he comes and he appears. uh, It's been, as I said, 400 years since there's been any revelation. It's been 500 years since anyone saw knowingly an angel. Just so happens that the last man to see an angel also was named Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Before him, Daniel saw an angel in his visions. But both of those men saw angels in dreams and visions. Zechariah is seeing a real, a tangible uh, angel right in front of him. Now, if this angel, he doesn't give us any details about what he looked like. But if he's anything like the angels that have been seen elsewhere, like in Isaiah or Daniel, Daniel says this about the angel he saw. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That is an awe-inspiring sight. It would be like a shaft of light came beaming down into the darkness of that temple as God sends his messenger to announce the announcer of the announcement of the son of God himself who is going to come. What a dramatic moment after 500 years. Now let me explain the significance of this. I'm sorry, after 400 years. I draw a correlation between what is happening here. I don't think it was any mistake that the Lord led us into that that, that study of the holiness of God. And we spent so much time talking about the burning bush and, and how God was going to deliver his people. So it should be fresh 
in your minds. But this is not exactly the same thing. Don't think I'm saying this is a reflection of that, because I'm not, because there are some substantial differences. But in a sense, this is very similar to that. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, it was a theophany. Now, it was God, but it was a representation of the glory of God in that bush, and he commissions Moses to be his deliverer, to go and to bring his people who for 400 years had not heard from God and now they were going to hear from him they were going to be redeemed and brought so that they can worship God at Mount Horeb well in, in a very similar sense that is exactly what's happening here also 400 years have been since anyone heard from God in any kind of revelation also the glory of God not God himself not a theophany but an angel directly out of the presence of God as he will later tell Zechariah and then he has come to announce the deliverer who will come and save the people in bondage to slave and slavery to sin to redeem them and bring them out so that they can worship God, okay? Hugely significant event that's going on here right now. Well, Zechariah's response, or the way that he responds to this, is very similar to other people respond. Look in the 12th verse. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. You think that's a little bit of understatement? By <laughs> Luke, he was troubled. Um, actually, the word in this context is a little bit stronger than that. The Greek word means to be stirred up, to be shaken badly, to be stunned, or to be shocked. And, and, and Luke goes ahead and says that fear fell upon him, the fear of being in the presence of a divine, not a divine, but a heavenly being. So, in other words, Zechariah is terrified when he sees the angel appear. And, and you can only, and this is something I want us to see, because I, I'm, I'm going to draw a correlation between us and Zechariah in a moment. He has to be an emotional wreck. On the one hand, he walks in there, he's so proud of himself, I'm so happy. And then he begins to get humbled, and then he begins to tremble as he gets nearer to the altar because of what he's getting ready to do. He should have been able to just give his incense, go outside, and everybody would have thought he would be great. He would have been risen. He would rise in the estimation of his peers, and all of a sudden an angel appears right out of heaven. And of course, things are going to be different because outside, people are praying and praying praying and waiting and waiting and waiting. And Zechariah is going to be in there far too long. So I'm going to leave it there. I know that's not fair, sorry. But that's where, that's where we are, building to this extraordinary drama of the appearance of this angel. But here's what I want to discuss, because there are some things I'd like to discuss with you here, and, and that is the underlying meaning here, and, and it's wrapped up in Zechariah's name. Zechariah what reminds us that God remembers. And brothers and sisters, like I said at the first, God never forgets a promise, ever, ever. I don't care how far back the promise went. He never forgets a promise, and he will never not fulfill a promise. We may misunderstand it. We may not completely understand the way that he fulfills a promise, but God will always fulfill his promise. Always. Go back to 
Genesis 3.15. Go back to the very beginning, right after the fall, passing out the curses. What does God say? He says, you've just joined the ranks of Satan. You have just become a child of darkness. But there will come a day. There will come a day where I will enter again space and time and the seed of the woman will stomp on the face, on the head of the serpent. Well, that just happened. I mean, he's just come back to announce that occurring. So he has, over all those millennia, he has remembered his promise that he made way back in Genesis 3.15. When he brought the flood, talking to Noah, he said, Noah, I'm never going to ever, ever... Uh, bring that kind of a flood again. We, we read about it in Psalm 89. I'm never going to destroy sin again in that way. Uh, now, eventually, I'm going to bring fire down upon the world, as Peter says in his letter. But before that, springtime and harvest will continue until I bring a redeemer. I'm going to bring another solution to sin. And it's not going to be destroying all the sinful. It is going to be to send my son so he can take your sins upon him. It is the covenant the promise of redemption. And of course, that is now entering space and time as Gabriel comes down to announce God remembers his promise. God remembers his promise to Abraham. Just as we talked about earlier, the correlation between Elizabeth and Sarah. And God told Abraham, the the world is going to be blessed through your descendant. Well, that descendant is Jesus The son of Abraham, he is the one who is going to come and to fulfill the covenant of grace. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness to believe in Jesus. Well, credited to anyone who believes as righteousness so you can stand before God. God promised to Moses, Moses, if you keep my commandments that I give you, if you follow these rules, if you, if you sacrifice in this way, if you do the things that I tell you to do, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will look upon your sins and remember them no more. And, 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 and that's only temporary because the blood of bull and goats cannot ultimately forgive sin. So God remembers the covenant with Moses and he brings his son now to be the one to pay the penalty for people's sins to die on a cross with our sins upon him. He remembers the promise he made to Moses. He also remembers the promise he made to David. Boy, that's going to be a huge part of this study of Luke. Because he says there will be a king on David's throne forever and ever and ever. We read about it a couple of weeks ago in Daniel 7. Where Daniel sees a vision of the coronation of the Christ after the ascension. And his kingdom is a kingdom that knows no end. God remembers his covenant. Brothers and sisters, he remembers every promise that he's ever made to you. Some of the promises that Zechariah and Elizabeth really didn't get, didn't understand because there were ones that would be 30 years in the making. But when Jesus came, he promised you so much. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Because you see, that's the importance here. Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They not only believed God in his promises, after 400 years of silence, 
They believed and trusted and they lived their belief that God remembered. Can you say the same? The situation you're in is not like the situation they were in. Because they were at the end of 400 years of silence. You haven't experienced that silence yet. You say, well, wait a minute, it's 2,000 years since God revealed himself. He's been silent all those years. Yeah, he's been silent in the sense that he gave us that revelation, but he also sent his Holy Spirit to constantly renew and illuminate us to that revelation that he's written down in his word. So every time we turn to the word, every time you sit through a sermon like this, it is the renewal of the revelation of God. That's the reason we stick to scripture, because it is the revelation of God continuing. And then he has sent us great men to help us interpret what the scriptures say. Men like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul and thousands of others who have written down the deeper meaning of scripture. And you have seen revival after revival over the years. The Reformation, the Great Awakening, the pilgrimage to the United States by the Puritans. You have seen over and over again the power and the glory of God's work. Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't. And yet they still believed. Brothers and sisters, you have been so blessed the last 250 years, you have lived, not in the kind of country that they lived in under Herod, but you have lived in a nation, a country, a place where it's a Christian culture. It always has been for 250 years. You live in a place where you can buy a Bible at any corner. There are churches everywhere. Turn TV on, radio, the internet. You are going to see the truth continually preached to you. You don't have to go far. In fact, you have to kind of run to stay away from it. You have been so blessed But do you trust God's promises? What if all that changes? Where will you be? If you all of a sudden find yourself in a situation like Zechariah and Elizabeth were in. Where God has been silent for 400 years. Where he has removed his hand of blessing from his people. And and not a peep of revelation. What if that happens? You see... We have lived in a Christian culture in this country. But right now, that's no longer true, is it? And you know that. We live in a post-Christian culture. We used to be Christian. That used to be the ethical standards of the environment and the culture that you lived in. There's always been sin. There's always been wickedness. But at least there was a, a, a foundation of Christian ethics that ran this country. That's no longer true. We are post-Christian. There are a lot of students who grow up that don't even know what the Bible says, don't even know who Jesus was, don't know anything about the Christian ethics. They only know what they've been taught. But brothers and sisters, we are quick moving to not just a post-Christian culture, but an anti-Christian culture. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to suffer financially, to lose your job for your faith? Are you ready to have this church taxed? Out of existence, so we have to stop meeting here. We have to close up and start meeting in people's houses the way that they did in the first century. 
Are you ready for that? What will happen to your belief? Will you remember that God always remembers His promises? Will you put your trust and your faith in those promises? Will you refuse to be budged? Or will you be like everyone else in Zechariah's day? Like the Sadducees who became liberal. Like the Pharisees who became legalistic. Like the Herodians who turned pagan. Like the Zealots who decide they're going to take their country back forcefully. How are you going to respond if indeed God goes silent and removes his hand of blessing from this country? And there's many of us who think that he already has. Are you going to be faithful? Well, that's the reason we have this model, brothers and sisters, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. After 400 years, they never forgot Zechariah. Zechariah. God remembers every promise that he ever made to you. When John said, when Jesus said in John, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Are you going to believe in that to the extent that you live your life according to it? Even if God goes completely silent and things turn really sour for Christians. I pray that you will. If I have anything to do with it, you will. But let me leave you with just this one thought. As I said at the outset, and this is not the way that it is meant. This is not the way the scripture states it. But I said at the outset that not only does God remember every promise he has ever made, he remembers every promise you have ever made. So don't consider your promises to God like New Year's resolutions that it doesn't matter whether you keep them or not because God remembers He remembers every single thought, every word, every deed, everything that you've done, everything you haven't done. God remembers. You know, when you become a Christian, there are some promises that you implicitly and explicitly make. You say, Jesus, you are my Savior. No longer will I try to save myself. No longer will I, I, I put such a premium on my own righteousness. I realize that I'm a beggar, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I will trust in you and you alone for my salvation. And I have absolutely no part of it. How are you doing with that? Have you tried to take some of that back? Or do you still completely trust in the promise that you made to Jesus? You are my Savior. You also make the promise, you are my Lord. You're sovereign in my life. You lead, I follow. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. You are Lord over all creation. How are you doing with that? Is he the Lord of your life? Do you follow him? Are you keeping that promise or is that one of those promises that you've just kind of said, well, well, you know, I do sometimes. You promise Implicitly, that you will seek Jesus with your whole heart. That you will be a radical disciple. That you will follow him wherever he leads, no matter how tough it is, no matter whether it's, it's, it's difficult, no matter whether it puts strain on you. You said, I will be your sheep. You are my shepherd. How are you doing with that? How about that promise? Is that a promise that you're keeping? And of course, when you accept Christ as your savior, you also say, Jesus, I love you. You're my Lord. You saved me. You died for me. I love you. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
That's a promise. How are you doing with that promise? Are, are you keeping that? Finally, you implicitly say, I will worship you. I will worship you with what I do, what I think, what I say. I will worship you in the morning. I will worship you in the evening. I will worship you on Sunday, all day long. I will worship you all week long in the way that I interact and live my life. I worship you. Have you kept that promise? Have you kept that promise to him this morning? Or are you distracted? Are you thinking about your grocery list or what you're going to do afterwards? Are you thinking about that when, if ever, we have Sunday night services again? Tonight at 6.30, we have a Bible study. Tuesday, we have another one. Wednesday, we have another one. What are you going to be doing in those times? Are you going to continue and say, I was made for worship. It completes me and fulfills me. And if there is any chance for me to worship, I'm going to be there. Because I remember my promises. Brothers and sisters, all I can tell you about that simply this. Zachar, I am. God remembers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we forget the promises that we have explicitly and implicitly made to you. We know, dear Lord, that we create new idols every day. We create new ways not to worship you or show our love to you or keep the commandments. Oh, Father, we fail in so many ways. We do so depend on your grace. But, Lord, we know that we can't be antinomian in the sense that the more we sin, the more grace abounds, so let's sin all the more. That's not what you've called us to do. Forgive us, Lord, when we do sin. Help us to grow every day so that we might keep the promises that we know that you remember. But thank you, Lord. Praise your holy name that you are a God who never forgets the promises that you have made us. And one of the greatest promises is the one in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.